Morning, everybody. Happy hump day. Welcome to the news agenda of me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's deputy political editor, Ben Glaze. Morning, Ben. Ben, can you hear us? Ben. Ben's frozen, I think. Ben is dead. Ben's dead. Someone's someone's done for Ben. Right. Well, hopefully he's going to log out and come back in again in a bit. And then we can say good morning to him. But in the meantime, I'll have to blether on by myself. Now, this is the People's Pay-Per-View. So get into the comments. Please do, because there's no one else for me to talk to at the moment. Uh, ask us your questions and uh, I will do my best to answer them for you. Those of you listening later on podcast are just going to have to set your WhatsApp to auto delete and hope no one finds out. Ben, are you there? Uh, I am, yeah. I'm not sure what's going on. It's Let's go arriving early. <laughs> yes, we've gone just before nine, so it's obviously all the gremlins have got really annoyed with us because we've asked them to do too much work too early in the day. Um, now, what have we got for you today? Well, the Mirror has splashed on some of the more appalling revelations from the COVID inquiry yesterday, in particular, the rather disgusting callousness of then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who resisted lockdowns during the pandemic because he felt it was quite right for older people to die. And frankly, didn't understand anything that he was being told. Turns out people would have preferred the experts after all. Now, more on that in a bit. First, I want to turn to pages 14 and 15, where in a good bit of news for once, the Mirror has won a campaign to stop the closure of almost a thousand railway ticket offices. Now, Ben, can you remind us what they were suggesting and why and what's happened now exactly? Right. Now, these plans came from the industry body, the Rail Delivery Group which is basically the association of um, various train operating companies that we have under the weird system that we use in this country. And they put forward plans to shut 974 front counters at stations. Those are the ticket offices where some people, about 10% of passengers, still go and buy their tickets from a human, an actual real-life person. Mm -hmm. um, now, the plan, as put forward, was that the ticket offices would close and the staff would go on to platforms, so they'd be not behind a desk, they'd be able to help passengers on the platforms and on the concourse. In reality, the unions were saying that that would lead to about 2,000 job losses, and it was a money-saving tactic. And of course, the people who would be most affected by the closures of those front counters, um, it wouldn't be sort of the youngsters, it wouldn't be people who've got smartphones and buy tickets via apps and on the mm -hmm. internet. It would be the elderly people. It would be disabled people who, you know, are, find it more difficult to perhaps use some of the machines that are also on the, the concourses and on the platforms and people who like dealing with an actual real life human and don't like the, you know, the self-service checkouts at the supermarket that I bought. Um, so those are the people who would be most affected. So back over the summer, um, we started a campaign to save these 974 ticket offices and get the government to abandon the plans. And fairly soon on, we got quite a lot of support behind it from unions, um, from various groups such as uh, the Silver Voices Group, the Pensioners Group, Age UK, um, the National Pensioners Convention. And they became, and it's quite difficult sometimes, particularly during parliamentary recess, to get this sort of huge swathe of support behind it because a lot of people are on holiday. But we kept pushing at it and organised a demonstration that took place in Westminster towards the end of the summer recess. And it started to appear like the government were listening. Um, you know, they started to go, oh, well, these are the industry plans. It's not necessarily what we agree with. And then they were subject to consultation. 750,000 people, that's three quarters of a million people, responded to the consultation that the government was legally obliged to do. That's the biggest ever response to a consultation. Mm. Now, we all know that when something goes out of consultation, it's usually just, oh, well, you're going through the motions. You don't actually listen. You've decided what you want to do. You have to tick a box to say, oh, we consulted the public. 
if three quarters of a million people respond and the overwhelming majority of those said we don't want this to go ahead, the government was going to have egg on its face, potentially legally. Um, and Metro mayors, including um, Greater Manchester Metro Mayor Andy Burnham and West Yorkshire Metro Mayor Tracy Brabin, they said they were going to look to launch a legal fight against the plan should they go ahead. And yesterday, as Dominic Cummings was giving evidence to the COVID public inquiry, the government finally backed down. So whilst everyone else was supposedly looking the other way, um, the government said we won't go ahead with these plans. So a lot of, you know, well done to us, well done to Mirror. Also the two um, watchdogs, Transport Focus and London Travel Watch, who said that the plan shouldn't go ahead and the government has finally listened them back down. So yeah, it's a very good day. And yeah, it's, it's good for us as a Mirror that we've won this, but more importantly, it's very good for all the people and we were representing our readers and even people who don't read the paper, but still, or indeed online, but still didn't want those closures to go ahead. So, yeah, we've, we've won this. Yeah, great. Well, Mike says, obviously, this reversal is a victory for those who campaign to keep ticket offices open. But is this another example of the government changing announced policy outside Parliament? Why not announce it in the Commons? It's the kind of thing where parliamentary etiquette doesn't do require that some of this stuff goes to Parliament before it gets announced publicly. And yet Transport Secretary Mark Harper has come out yesterday, as you said, just when everyone's looking in the other direction and saying, no, we're not doing this anymore. Um, why have they actually, firstly, are they going to get in trouble for, for doing it this way? And secondly, why have they, they crumbled now? Because they always knew it was going to be unpopular. It was never going to be a terribly popular thing to do. Is it the legal threat that really did for it? Um, or, and obviously we blow our own trumpet a bit, but... Um, you know, that wasn't governments don't like fighting legal cases. They cost taxpayers a lot of money. They get dragged to the courts. Things get delayed. And, you know, they're already fighting the, the Rwanda deportation um, row in, in one court. Um, if this legal fight had taken place, it's entirely possible to have dragged well into the middle of next year. And what's going to happen later next year? More than likely a general election. Do you be fighting to shut nearly a thousand ticket offices that are used predominantly by older people at a time when you're trying to court the older people vote ahead of a general election to try and cling to power? Of course you don't. So the government has, yeah, they've done it during the prorogation, which is the parliamentary recess before the state opening next week. They've done that. Um, they're trying to sort of clear the decks, you'd assume, like Isaac Levido, who is um, a PR and lobby lobby chap that the Conservatives used in the 2019 general election, which obviously gave them an 80-seat majority. He's told um, senior people at number 10 to get the barnacles off the boat, which is a phrase that uh, Linton Crosby, another Tory election guru back in 2015, used to basically strip away all the things that you don't, you're not that bothered about. They're not going to win you any votes get rid of them and focus on some core priorities. So the government has, has abandoned the, the plan now. In terms of why they've done it outside of Parliament, I mean, I don't think they're going to get into a lot of trouble from the Speaker, Sir, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, from doing this now. He would prefer it to be announced to Parliament first, obviously. Um, but, you know, there's that, that old saying from well before my time, if you want to keep a secret, announce it in the Commons, because no one's looking at the Commons. So. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, um, so we can blow our own trumpet a little bit. I mean, what do you think, everybody? Do you think that um, this is a, a great victory for 
people power, I suppose, in a way. You know, a lot of newspapers reported on it. A lot of uh, TV regional stations reported on it too. Um, but the Mirror is the only one that actually decided to take a stance and, and fight it and make it a campaign. And as a result, can now claim, you know, it's the Mirror what won it. But on that page, as Paul Routledge points out in his op-ed, and he's a former industrial reporter who covered a lot of the strikes in the 70s, so he knows what he's talking about here. He says this is just a battle won, not the war. And the rail bosses will be back because they have this long term aim of cutting staff numbers and costs. So, like you say, they've got the barnacles off the boat in this particular instance. But at some point in the future, those rail bosses, whether it's a Labour or a Tory government, are going to be back and saying they want to act staff numbers in some other way or maybe try and reinvigorate this. I mean, where does this go next? I do think that because there's a, there is a decreasing number of people using those front ticket counters, those front ticket offices. Um, so when I have no doubt that at some point these plans will return, possibly not on the same scale. You know, it might not be 974, it might be 500. Um, they might pick the 500 least used in the country and then say, look, only 10 people have used this in the past two weeks or something like that. Mm. Um, what is the point in staffing it from eight till six or nine till five, whatever, at a cost of X? We could have that person out on the front on the concourse or on the platform, um, talking to passengers, helping them with, you know, get on the next train, you can change here, it'll save you 10 minutes, whatever, that sort of thing. So yes, I think Ratledge is right there. We, you know, we've won this particular battle, but the overall direction of, of travel if you like um it is heading one way to to more automation um so i you know those 974 front counters that were under threat until mid-morning yesterday do i think they'll all still be there in 10 years probably not no well and as i i had to catch a train yesterday and the automated ticket machine had been smashed to hell by someone uh, either in a fury at the train operators or more likely because they're a bit drunk and fancied a fight with the machine so it would always have been impossible yesterday whether there's a ticket office open or not to actually buy a ticket but anyway um tell us what you think everybody about the railway ticket offices staying open is that a relief for you is it something that doesn't matter you always buy tickets somewhere else anyway or are the, are the tories just managing a declining service and something has to buy it someone's going to have to bite the bullet on this at some point let us know now on to the horror story of halloween uh yesterday former downing street advisor dominic cummings gave evidence of the covid inquiry and not only did jaws hit the floor in the first five minutes by the time he'd finished there was no floor left now depending on which paper you read uh if you're reading one that's supportive of Boris Johnson's a bit more right-wing paper, for example, then Cummings, the lockdown dodger, squirmed under cross-examination, basically admitted foul-mouthed, misogynistic rants at others within Downing Street. Uh, and if you read another paper, uh, say the Mirror, then Boris Johnson led a government of criminal incompetence so callous they genuinely blamed the elderly for catching and dying from COVID because that caused them an economic headache. Now, let's stand back from this for a minute, Ben, and the papers and the politics just for a bit. This was, regardless of how you feel about it, a, clearly a government that with a, a depth and a breadth and a, a volume of dysfunction and personal hatreds within it, it wasn't able to run a tap without starting a scandal, never mind a country, was it? It was, yes, COVID has caused this to come out, but I mean, this was happening long before COVID, wasn't it? Yeah, so when Boris Johnson took Dominic Cummings into Downing Street in July uh, 2019, when, when he became prime minister, so many of us were shocked that he brought him in. Um, you know, it just, it was a, I don't want to go back to 
that particular day because there was just so much going on and you know one bombshell after another um you know pretty patel coming home secretary for example those sorts of things and that was a, in the end a footnote for for what went on so we were surprised very surprised he brought dominic Cummings back because everyone knew what he was like obviously no one knew that six months down the line there'd be this once in a century pandemic hitting Britain hitting the world and, you know, and, and lapping up on British shores. Um, so the whole system, the prime minister, his advisors, the civil service, none of it was set up and able to deal with, you know, understandably to a certain extent, because this hadn't happened for 100 years and obviously an awful lot of change in 100 years. Nobody was ready for it. But the, beneath the surface, the chaos, the warfare, the internal hatred that existed, it was just, it was terrible. And now we're finally, thanks to the COVID public inquiry being chaired by Baroness Heather Hallett, finding out exactly what they thought of each other, the, the arguments that were being had, the language that was being used. You know, it would be, you know, you and I've worked in newsrooms for years. And I, th I think some of those messages yesterday would have made either of us blush. <laughs> well, I don't know about blush, but it certainly made me um, recognise a few things. Um, and the fact is, anyway, that if you're in a newsroom, you're just running a newspaper. When you're running a government, it's a bit different if you're starting to refer to each other as some of the things that are being discussed yesterday, which we can't really go into much detail. Now, we've got some of the contents of one or two of the WhatsApps, and I wonder if we can put one of them up on the screen to start with. So get in here. This is a message from Dominic um, Cummings to Lee Kane, the press officer. Get in here. He's melting down. Rishi saying bond markets may not fund our debt, etc. He's back to Jaws mode expletive. I've literally said the same thing 10 effing times. Now, this is and he still won't absorb it. I'm exhausted just talking to him and stopping the trolley. Now, this is. Dominic Cummings talking to the press officer saying, please get in here and help me persuade the prime minister about what we need to do next, because he is in this mode of being the mayor in Jaws, insisting that the beaches must stay open, basically insisting the country must stay open and, you know, stuff COVID, we'll get through it sort of thing. The, the, the shark isn't that big. We don't need to worry about it. Now, if that sounds panicked, um, I mean, it is. I mean, some of the detail is just astonishing. Messages claiming that the Cabinet Office wanted to delay a lockdown because they hadn't done the work and didn't want to work weekends to get it done. Boris Johnson thought his main danger was talking the economy into a slump. Boris in Jaws mode, like we've just said. Hancock was a liar. Mark said, Will, the Cabinet Secretary, didn't have a Scooby. Cummings just, Cummings, sorry. Cummings just seemed to loathe all the women all the women in Downing Street, whether they were civil servants or Carrie Johnson, he blamed them for making the prime minister do something that he didn't want the prime minister to do. Uh, and, that, and also the prime minister was careering around like a broken shopping trolley. Now, like I say, it all sounds really panicked. And if that's so, it's because I think, Ben, you know, for the first month or two, the government and Cummings included, didn't think COVID was going to be a big issue. They didn't get things in place when they should have done perhaps a month sooner even when the Chinese were bulldozing roads to stop the virus spreading and setting up fever clinics, it didn't occur to them that this was going to come this way, didn't shut down the flights from China and so on. Italy goes into lockdown and they still didn't even email the prime minister during his 10 day half term break. I mean, a lot of this, there's the there's the shocking WhatsApps, aren't there? But there's also the fact that what it you know, the, the insistence and the swearing and the fighting is covering up the fact, really, that for a month, when they should have been starting to get stuff in place, they weren't 
doing anything. And Boris was on holiday, in fact. If you go back to, let's go back to late summer and autumn 2019, right? Parliament's paralysed. <laughs> Parliament's pa- paralysed by the Brexit wars, right? Yeah. Then there's a general election. Boris Johnson gets his 80-seat majority, so you can take this out of the EU after three and a half years of since the referendum of, you know, Tory party civil war, the country being massively divided. We go out of the EU in late January, January 31st, um, 2020. After that, everyone breathes a huge sigh of relief, right? Even Remainers who thought, you know, democracy must be respected. It's got done. Let's all just take it easy, calm down for a bit. Far away lands, you've got this pandemic breaking out, but it's okay, it's in China, it'll never get over here. And suddenly it starts sweeping the globe unbeknownst to people at the time, already rife in Britain, spreading like wildfire, um, the Prime Minister goes for a half-term retreat, not actually to his country retreat at Chequers, which is the Prime Minister's traditional country, Bolthol in Buckinghamshire. That's been refurbished. Instead, he goes to the Foreign Secretary's down in Kent at Chevening. Now, every time the Prime Minister isn't away, isn't in London or is on a break, we're always told Prime Minister always and everywhere is in charge, can always be contacted, blah, 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 etc. which stands to reason we've all got black breeze. Doesn't work. work. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can always be contacted. What came out yesterday from Dominic Cummings' evidence was they didn't want to contact him. It's not just that he couldn't be contacted because he was on half term. They didn't want to because they thought they were better off making plans without him. They thought he would hamper the plans they needed to put in place. So it's chaos is reigning. No one is really aware of how to deal with this. Everyone's sort of still patting themselves on the back because of getting Brexit done, to use the vernacular. So everyone's feeling quite smug about that, completely ignoring what is coming across Europe and heading for British shores is already here in reality. We just don't even know it at that time. So the plans aren't put in place. Um, you know, Dominic Cummings refers to him as the shopping trolley veering off in one direction after another. I mean, if, if the shopping trolley works, it does stay actually going in straight lines. I'm not sure the analogy is everywhere, but there we are. A broken shopping trolley might be better. Um, but yeah, he's contacting the director of communications, Lee Kane, who, bear in mind, he is an advisor. He's supposed to advise on communications. He's not there to advise on closing borders, stopping flights from Beijing, that sort of thing. He's there on how to say how it would look to the public and how you're going to communicate that message, not actually the substance of it. Meanwhile, filthy messages are going back and forth, you know, with misogynistic terms, berating the civil service, effing and blinding about other advisors, other ministers. The entire chaos is just raining in Downing Street at the time, all the time. They're supposed to be building our defences for something that is already here. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't seem likely. What does seem to have come out is that, like you say, Lee Kane, whose job it was to communicate government policy, and Dominic Cummings and everybody else is basically having to babysit a toddler. And they are themselves toddlers. You know, they're they're not any of them acting with maturity or dignity or respect even for the for the job they're doing and the role they're fulfilling. I mean, what do you think, everybody? Do you feel that this is the kind of government you voted for? Do you feel that Boris Johnson had a point in anything that he was saying? Or are you, you know, have, has, has somehow have these WhatsApp messages and this inquiry, is it lifting the scales a bit from your eyes? Get into the comments and let us know. What impact do you think this had on the COVID care that you or your loved ones had as well? Mike says, it's quite surprising how senior journalists who were very close to number 10 when Johnson was there as COVID broke now seem astonished at the chaos. I don't know who you're thinking of, Mike. I suspect it's one or two people who might work for the Daily Telegraph or the Daily Mail. Um, did they trade access 
for favourable coverage. This this is the kind of thing that's often said about journalists, isn't it, Ben? And often those who sort of work in the lobby, um, like you do, and that somehow or another that you sort of um, promote somebody in return for actually getting some kind of access to them. There is a bit of a trade-off when you're a, a specialist of any sort that you, you know, you, you need to get in there and you need people's goodwill. And occasionally you do stroke an ego here and there, or I find that I do, but I certainly don't um, sell my soul in order to, you know, get someone to talk to me in future. I usually insist that I'm going to tell the truth and try and earn their respect that way. I mean, how do you feel that 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 played out during COVID and with some of your colleagues on right wing papers? Are, are they, as Mike suggested, you know, overlooking these things and trading access and coverage or are they? Are people genuinely sort of quite surprised and shocked to find out what was really going on? Within mainstream media, and I would also include myself in that and most of the lobby, no, you don't sacrifice principles to ignore a story or big someone up or look after your contacts, that sort of thing. Every, you know, everyone knows there's a story at which point you'll have to burn your contacts. Um, you know, this, this living in the real world. On the extremities, both the far left and, and the, the hard right, hard left, hard right, um, you know, you have journalists, massage journalists, and I, to be honest, I'm going to put that in inverted commas, journalists, fans with notepads, and some of them so, do work. Someone on. whose words regularly appear in a journal, but perhaps don't have quite the same rigour as, say, yeah. newspapers. You know, you do, you do have fans with notebooks who will go and write what, what they're told by uh, a politician on the hard left or on the hard right. Now, you, I, I don't take that seriously. Most Most respected, if you like. Um, reporters wouldn't you know we do have a go like the mirror is often critical of stuff that Labour is doing we, you know we're currently trying to press for free school meals to get into Labour manifesto Labour hierarchy is not happy about that they don't want to do it and um, so it's not the case that even as a, a Labour supporting newspaper we agree with everything that party does the Telegraph doesn't agree with everything the Conservatives do Mail doesn't agree with everything the Conservatives do. Um, and there's one other thing that I just, I think it's worth highlighting from Lee Kane's evidence yesterday and just the evidence he gave from the box as opposed to written um, the WhatsApps that were exposed. I don't think Lee Kane actually came out of it that badly yesterday. Obviously, if he hadn't been followed by Dominic Cummings, he might have looked a bit worse. Um, but there was one thing he said, which I found very revealing, right? He said Boris Johnson didn't have the skill set to be prime minister during a pandemic. Now, we all know that, obviously, we knew that at the time. But what what Boris Johnson was very good at was a campaigner. You know, if we if he hadn't have um, led vote leave, we'd probably still be in the European Union. He is a conservative, old Etonian, bumbling posho, if you like, who twice became mayor of London, Labour London. Um, he's a brilliant campaigner. There's no getting away from that. And that's 2019 majority of 80 that he won for the Conservatives that finally led to us leaving the EU. Nobody else could have won that. But those skills as a great campaigner do not translate into being a great prime minister, and certainly not when the country's hit by the worst crisis since the Second World War. Now, when Dominic Cummings has obviously decided as the prime minister's chief advisor that we needed to go hard on a lockdown and earlier than what was actually imposed, that was his advice to the prime minister. Now, very coarse language, it must be said, um, but that's one line of advice that the Prime Minister should receive. The Prime Minister does have a duty, I'm not sympathising with Boris Johnson here at all, but he does have a duty to consider not just the effects on public health and the NHS, also the effects on the economy. So if 
Dominic Cummings is saying the Prime Minister is too worried about the economy. Well, that is a balance. You know, mm. part of the reason that there are no tax cuts coming is the Tory right one, and there's not more public money for spending on schools, hospitals, as, as other people want. It's because COVID cost us £400 billion, supporting the economy, the lost revenue and taxation, huge economic slump. So it is right that the Prime Minister not just considered public health in the NHS, but also the effects on the economy. What was wrong, from the way Boris Johnson handled it, is once he's made a decision, you have to stick to it. You have to decide, and then you have to be 100%, 100 miles an hour in going for that decision. That is the right course of action. doesn't mean you don't like to still listen to other advice whilst you're doing it, but to give confidence to your workforce, to the civil service, your special advisors, to the country, and the country, you know, we can all remember, it was a very difficult time, um, something that we had never known, you know, people who lived through the war, they'll be comparing it with that. For those of us who, thank God, didn't live through the Second World War, this is, it was unprecedented. So he needed to lead the country and give the country confidence, and he didn't do that. No. Leslie says people are going to regret voting for him. Will this lead to more people questioning everything he stated as a good campaigner? Now, what you said there, Ben, and what Leslie's pointed out, is that, yes, he's a great campaigner. Lee Kane says he didn't have the right skill set to be prime minister in this particular crisis. But seeing as how he handled this crisis was that he took the advice from the last person in the room every time. And he went from being full lockdown to full anti-lockdown, sometimes in the space of a day. Um, he's more like a weeble, you know, not being decisive, not going one way, just just flipping and flopping constantly. And that isn't the right skill set to be a prime minister in any crisis on any day of the week. Never mind. Yes, you need to, like you said, you need to balance the, the, the problems with the economy and the problems with people and try and find a way through it. But that means you take advice from different people and you have to be stable and try and figure the figure the route out. But if you're instable and you're banging around like this all the time, you're never going to make a decision. You're never going to be able to have any clarity of direction and no one else around you is ever going to know where you're going either. Now, some of this is nothing that we didn't suspect, I suppose. But, you know, we had civil servants and press officers who just despaired of him. We got the staff around him all fighting with each other like cats in a sack. No one was really able to do the job they were supposed to. They were reliant on him providing a centre, a centre of gravity, I suppose, and they didn't have that. He was relying on them telling him what to do. So who's ultimately responsible here? Is it the Prime Minister then, Boris Johnson, for not leading better and getting a grasp on things? Or is it the officials and the advisers for not really forcing his nose into the bridle and, and getting the work done that he needed to get done? The, the Prime Minister is always responsible. You know, he, that is his job. Um, as Prime Minister, it's to, to lead and to ultimately take responsibility. Um, so, you know, if if he didn't like the advice he was getting, well, that sucks, eh? But, you know, get different advisors. But if they're just telling you what they think is true, based on the evidence they've looked at, they are the experts in the room. Yeah. Well, you, as Prime Minister, absorb that information, you balance it, you go across the details, and then you decide. And once you've decided, you say, this is what we're doing and this is how I want us to do it. And you, you're clear. And like I say, you can carry on taking advice as you go along. It doesn't mean like you, this is it. You don't ever think twice about it. But it means that you provide that direction so people know what you are doing. And you don't change your mind 
the moment you hear a different bit of advice because you you decide after hearing all the advice um, and then you and then you take decisions and you justify them and you stand by them so ultimately yeah only he is responsible yeah, well, Rachel says four hundred billion pound cost. Yes, but how much did they waste? Track and trace. The loans were awfully organised. If you don't do the paperwork and the homework properly, then you don't organise things properly. And there's also there's a message from Boris Johnson, which I think went to Lee Kane, his press officer, which just shows how little he did understand what was going on. He said, "I must say, I've been slightly rocked by some of the data on COVID fatalities. The median age is 82, 81 for men, 85 for women." That is above life expectancy. So get COVID and live longer. Now, let's just keep that up on the screen for a moment. The median age of fatalities may well have been 82. And the um, the above life expectancy, that may well be, yes, for the general population, which I think is about 80, 81. But the fact is that your average life expectancy right, is affected by the number of babies who die and people who die in childbirth, and people who have car accidents, and everything else that happens before you get to 80, all right? So there are an awful lot of 80-year-olds who are going to make it to 90, who are going to make it to 100, so long as they get the right care. And just because you're in a care home, just because you've got a chronic condition, like a particular heart problem, or you know, a prostate cancer that's quite slow, for example, doesn't mean you don't have 10 years of useful life left in you. And the fact is that when people were explaining average life expectancy to the prime minister, he needed to get that the over 80s are still his voters. They're still they're still someone's granny or granddad. There's still people who are either taking a pension or buying things in the shops. They're still active economic units. All right. And there's no reason whatsoever that 81 dying at 81 was acceptable for anybody. Um, even if it was only knocking six months off your life, it's too damn early. You're still knocking time off people's lives. He didn't seem to compute the fundamentals of what the, the science actually shows, which is just because life expectancy is an average of X, that doesn't mean if you make it past that point, you're winning or necessarily because you've got to go further past that point to bring the averages. I just I can't even. <sighs> it's too difficult really to try and get in your head just how thick this man is paul says correlation is not causation no that the same thing as someone being linked to something else doesn't mean that's what's caused anything but um you know we've got certainly a correlation of a very dysfunctional government and then a pandemic that was handled really badly and it could have been handled better. We've spent a lot of money, uh, as was pointed out. It didn't all get checked properly. It didn't get chased down properly. A lot of people died. And it does seem like the, the people who are in charge of looking after all that stuff couldn't, frankly, look after their own backsides. So um, that's the situation that we found ourselves in. Now, very briefly, Ben, Boris Johnson is not commenting on this because he can't. And also because he's going to be giving evidence to the inquiry at some point. Now, when he does, that's obviously going to be box office. But how is he going to get out of this? How can he justify? How is he going to spin or explain? And he's very good at that. Remember, he's very good at campaigning. isn't he? He's very good at saying stuff in a way that sounds believable and posh and intelligent, even though it isn't. How is he going to try and get out of this? I think so. on the, the live evidence that Dominic Cummings gave, Boris will be able to say, well, he's a former advisor, he's got a vendetta against me, you know, he hates me, he'll say anything, won't he? And that's probably true. You know, there'll be a lot of sympathy with that. 
What he can't get out of is the contemporaneous messages that have been revealed, some of them written in his own hand. Um, some of them which weren't going to appear at the COVID inquiry because he lost the pin code for his phone. If I was him, I would say something like, it was a terribly febrile atmosphere, unprecedented, you know, lots of chaos was going on. Of course, there was chaos because this is something that hasn't ever happened before. Um, certainly not in 100 years. Obviously, the world's moved on a lot in 100 years. So, yeah, you can take a message out of context and it looks awful. What about the X thousands of messages that you haven't published? Mm. Um, that's what I'd be saying if I was Boris Johnson. And instead of zeroing in on a particular message that looks terrible, say the overall, you know, well, we did put a lockdown. We did tell people to stay at home for three months. We did then have another lockdown later in the year. And yeah, you can pick on this, this and this, but what's about the overall impression? And then he might compare the death rates in Britain with similar countries where actually we come out in the middle. Um, and I think, and I'll be careful here, but because I'm not across the total data, but I think that also includes Sweden, which obviously didn't have anywhere near the same restrictions that we did. Um, and a over very different population though, not the same well, health. So many variables, as you were saying, with that median age, there were so many variables for Tim. And also with that, that text um, from Boris talking about the variables, number one, we know he's not normally after data. He's not a details man. I'd like to know who put the data in front of him or did he just Google median age death Britain? Um, bearing in mind, he had access to literally the best advisors in the country if he wanted it. And also, when he was doing that, referring to stats, that's quite unlike him because sometimes he has been able to focus on humanity and real people. And for all that, you know, oh, well, they were 82, they were going to die in a few months anyway. Yeah, yeah, but that's someone's gran. That's mm -hmm. someone's mum. That's, you know, that's, that's, a grand, that's a grandmother who's not going to be able to see her grandchild for six months longer than she thought. Um, so it's quite unlike him. And it did remind me of when, you remember why Rishi Sunak became our Chancellor in the first place on February the 14th, 2020? It was because Sajid Javid, the incumbent Chancellor, refused to sack some of his advisors. Mm -hmm. And allegedly, according to Sajid Javid, Boris Johnson said to him, they're just people, Saj. Oh, yeah. And then, mm, yeah. And then, of course, we end up with Shisunak, who apparently, according to the inquiry, was going in there saying, well, we can't lock down because uh, they won't fund the, the market. The markets won't fund it and we can't do it. So there's economically no reason, no way that we can. So you can't. And so therefore, perhaps even Rishi Sunak has a greater share of responsibility, perhaps, than the toddler that somehow or another ended up in charge of the country. But still, we'll have to um, see how things go when both Sunak and Johnson have to give evidence uh, in the not too distant future, won't we? But first off, um, before we wrap up, we have found some good news in the world. And here it is. Now, the osprey is a gorgeous bird of prey. It was driven to extinction for more than 150 years and a breeding pair was finally reintroduced to Scotland in 1996. Now, a new report has found that they are at record levels. There are now 280 pairs. They've laid 203 eggs. They're doing so well. They're moving south out of the Scottish Highlands and uh, repopulating the north of England as well. And some other hawks, the marsh harrier, the goshawk, the white-tailed eagle are also doing terribly well. Ben, is this proof, do you think, that it's a good thing Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings and the rest were never put in charge of bird conservation? <laughs> it's Boris. They're just birds, Ben. They're just birds. 
He is all about the wildlife. He does like the wildlife and rewilding. So, you know, I, I don't know to what extent he's had an influence on this, but, you know, I, I love this story. Um, ospreys are great predators. If you look at some of those, we haven't used one there, we've used a picture of a nest, but every now and then you see a picture of an osprey, like diving on the lake or coming out of the lake with this like big fish in its claws. It looks fantastic. And um, I've actually got personal experience with this because so I'm a member of the RSPB. Um, yeah, and I do like seeing birds of prey. Um, in Cornwall, where I go uh, every few months, family down there, um, there was supposed to be an osprey's nest um, on on a particular, I won't say where it is actually, because it's probably some yeah, people do tend horrible to people are trying to steal the eggs. So, um, yeah, so I went there, look, didn't actually see the osprey, but it was exactly the sort of place where they would be be nesting. And, you know, the fact I couldn't see it is a good thing because people who have more nefarious intentions than me also probably wouldn't be able to find it. But no, I'm glad they're back. It's great. Yes, it's wonderful news. And it does seem to show that no matter how bad things look, even if uh, you are actually extinct for 150 years with the right care and attention from experts who know what they're doing, everything and everyone can be brought back from the brink. Um, let's try to hold on to that thought. Bit of positivity after the chaos we've just had to define for everybody. There's always a way out of things. Um, let's try and get through uh, the rest of the week. And Storm Kieran, if you're in the south of England, batten down the hatches. And let's hope tree doesn't fall on the house. If you're in the north of England, let's hope you don't get too much more rain because you've had enough. And let's all try to hope that we get through to next Monday when we can have another edition of the news agenda and we'll all be in one piece for it. And we'll see you then right here at nine o'clock on Monday morning. Till then, everybody. Tatty bye.